Fantasy Animation is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. We publish blog posts from academics, animators and VFX artists for people to access, as well as these podcasts that take listeners on an informative but hopefully entertaining journey through the fascinating world of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org or subscribe via your favourite podcast subscription service. While you're there, give us a quick like, click the subscribe button or give us a quick review while you're at it, as we could always use the extra help. For now, do enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holliday. And today we are discussing um, Grave of the Fireflies, a film that until 24 hours ago I had not seen and on purpose because I heard it was horrific and uh, indeed it was in many ways, but beautiful in other ways, um, fantastical in many ways, haunting in many ways, and I've got a lot to say about um, uh, the film, the process of, uh, of adapting the, the novel um, and how it fits in with sort of traditions of fantasy, history, religion and the thorny relationship between the three. So I reckon I'll be all right for an hour or so. How about you, Chris? I'll yeah, I'll be I'll be all right. I'll, I'll I've got a few <laughs> few little bits and bobs to, to say. Obviously, we've done it sort of partner film. I think my neighbour Totoro. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess this in, is also a partner to that to that episode. I'm interested in in what does it mean for popular animation to sort of do politics. Uh, I think sort of the relationship between animation, um, political commentary. Uh, that perhaps challenges this historical truth or this false historical truth of, of animation as a, as a medium for children. Um, bit on bit on kind of trauma uh, and sort of I guess that the, the role that s- sort of small scale nationalism plays as it seeps into this, as you say, quite kind of horrific film that I'd seen once, but was yeah, it was a pleasure to, to revisit. And to help guide us through the film this week, we have the pleasure of uh, inviting Alex Do-Dr-Wit onto the podcast. Um, Alex is the associate editor of Cartoon Brew, um, as well as being a freelance journalist in his own right, uh, regularly, pub- regularly publishing in Sight and Sound magazine. Um, I reread his scorching review of The Lion King uh, earlier oh. today and, and very much enjoyed it and agree 100%. Uh, so you can check out his work there. Uh, and he is also, luckily for us, uh, the author of the very soon-to-be-published and probably published when you're listening to this uh, book Grave of the Fireflies which is part of the ongoing BFI film classics uh, series which is a terrific series in its own right and it's wonderful to see Grave of the Fireflies being added to it so Alex thanks so much for joining us on the podcast thanks uh, Alex other Alex uh, <laughs> that doesn't get too confusing <laughs> um, and thank you uh, for uh, firstly for inviting me on I'm honored because I listened to the podcast and um, and thanks also for making me reconfront the trauma of this film, which I had suppressed over the past <laughs> nine months after handing in my draft. <laughs> Hoped never to have to think about again, but here we are. It's it's interesting that we start with trauma uh, because I, I I think you know 
uh, I guess we're dealing with two traumas here. Uh, we got the trauma of the film itself and the way the film depicts and engages with the trauma. Um, and I guess actually the three traumas. There's the trauma of watching the movie, but I guess you've also got the trauma from a personal perspective of having written a book on it. Uh, and you know, from Chris and I's perspective, we know sort of what that feels like. Um, and I suspect you're now coming outside of that. So I guess to start things off, why don't you just tell the listeners what inspired you to to write this book and and why did you feel the need to work through the sort of the trauma or the ecstasy or the pleasure of, of Grave of the Fireflies? It's funny, when I pitched the book um, to uh, the, the editors of the series, Film Classics, I hadn't actually seen the film in a while. Um, I probably saw it multiple times in my early teens. That, those were the first times. Um, and then again, I think at some point in my early 20s. And then I just kind of moved away from it for about six or seven years. Um, but it was actually while I was in Japan um, on holiday that I picked up a in a bookshop there a little a little book. So Studio Ghibli, um, the studio behind this film, has recently started kind of um, cataloging and inventorizing and building its brand. Um, and one way it's done that is it's published lots of little official kind of um, what would you call them? Anthology, like critical anthologies about each of its films. They almost look like a film classics book, but they're actually a collection of lots of different essays and histories and testimonies from the people who made those films. So I saw the one for Grave of the Fireflies in a bookshop. I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's an interesting film. Um, I've got so many thoughts about it. I wonder what uh, Ghibli themselves have to say about it in this official anthology. Bought it, started reading in depth about its um, frankly crazy production <laughs> um, and thought okay well this is an interesting story to tell in itself apart from the story of the film uh, you know the, the narrative of the film um, and I've been kind of mulling the idea in my head for a while of pitching to the film classic series because it seemed this is my first book and it seemed like a good entryway into the writing of books I mean they're, they're quite small they're quite concise um, the brief is at once quite narrow and also quite free like you can do you can take your approach to the film you've chosen in all kinds of directions and the editors are okay with that. And so suddenly that plus the Grave of the Fireflies book reading kind of came together and I thought, okay, well, this would be a good one to pitch. Um, and I had a kind of polemical um, uh, motive as well, which was that I felt the film classic series, um, which I love, I, I've been reading it you know, on and off for, for a decade, I thought one thing it missed, well, a couple of things it misses, but one of those things was um, animation coverage. Uh, I don't know how many books there are in the series, but there are probably close to 200. Yeah. I counted four animated films. Uh, I thought, that's a bit of a shame. And then there's a kind of secondary um, motive, um, which was Isao Takahata, the director of Grave of the Fireflies, who, along with Hayao Miyazaki, was uh, basically creatively leading Studio Ghibli for, for decades, um, has been kind of skated over by uh, English language scholars and critics and journalists in general. He's got way less attention than Miyazaki. And in fact, as far as I know, there hasn't been a book published uh, on him or his work in English before this. So I thought, okay, well, that needs to change too. Uh, I hadn't really I hadn't really contemplated what it would mean to write a, fil write a book about... Um, a film that's kind of widely acknowledged to be the most wretched, miserable, depressing story of all time. But um, by that point, it was too late. <laughs> well, I, I, it's interesting you talk about the kind of genesis of, of your 
um, I guess engagement or re-engagement with with the film and 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 as I said in the in our kind of little brief introduction, we'd done my neighbor to Toro in a previous episode and and given yeah. what this film is about, you know it's it's uh, the experience of, of the of the individual or, or a pair, mm-hmm. a, a buddy, innocent people living in these kind of war torn war torn cities. Um, you mention a, a, a point in your in your book about the sort of pairing and the, uh, the relationship that Grave of the Fireflies has to my neighbor Totoro, and 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 I think you even call you call Totoro an irrepressibly sunny film, and yet talk yeah. about how similar they are because I I it, it does seem given what we are about to talk about in relation to the to the Grave of the Fireflies and, and what it does kind of politically and some of the quite horrific imagery and the things that it also doesn't show you and and uh, this time mm. i was struck in terms of the role of sound and and sort of the relentless um audio visual experience it gives you of of um of war and then you have totoro and so i just wondered it's obviously uh, well I, I assume you are more familiar with totoro or or was that was the relationship between those two films part of how you then entered into a discussion of this film because I, I was kind of struck by the, the parallels that you draw between two films that seem kind of quite mm. at odds with each other in lots of ways. Yeah, so just to give a quick backstory, the, the two films were released as a double bill in Japan um, and they were conceived from the start as a double bill. Oh. Um, they were green-lighted and developed as you know, simultaneously, produced simultaneously. Um, and they were marketed as kind of joint statement on things about Japanese society. Um, and I, I knew that. Uh, I'd read that a long time ago and that had been in the back of my mind and I'd often kind of marveled at that idea because yeah. the pairing seems so incongruous. And it is in many ways. Um, but as I started researching this book and re-watching not just Grave of the Five Lives but Totoro as well, um, I started realizing that they have more in common uh, than meets the eye. Um, one of the main similarities between them, and I think the significance of this has kind of been lost in time, it lost in the 30 years since then, because the range of stories um, treated, you know, depicted in anime has broadened so much since then. But at the time, it was still quite unusual to uh, create animated features that are not only set in Japan, but that really double down on the minute, naturalistic little details that make up Japan, not just Japan, but Japan in the past. Um, Totoro is probably seen as a fantasy film by many, but it also devotes a lot of attention to trying to get uh, the particulars of that time, 1950s Japan in that case, correct and accurate. It's, it's very realistic in many ways, and so is Grave of the Fireflies. And so just this idea of making a double bill about Japanese past and trying to make a, a real concerted and sophisticated statement about Japanese society and history, how Japan had changed in that time. So there's that fact already. And then there's just um, thematic parallels as well, which become more and more obvious the more you watch the two films together. Um, just the basic fact that the protagonists are a kind of young teenage person and then a little sister. The dynamics between them are different in the two films, but the way they relate to each other, you know, you can you can gain a lot by kind of juxtaposing the two films there. Um, in both cases, they have a mother who's unwell. In Grave of the Fireflies, she dies. Um, in Totoro, she doesn't. But the tension around death and illness and yeah. the loss of parenthood is really just shot through both films. Um, 
And, you know, the climax of Totoro is a search for the missing sister. There's a real fear that the little sister has died. In the end, she hasn't, but in Grave of the Fireflies, she has. So Totoro is almost like a kind of optimistic mirror image of Grave of the Fireflies. And then right down to certain details, like there are kind of motifs that uh, recur across the two films, just even down to like the little girl squashing the insect in her hand. That's something that happens in both. Well, I, I was thinking about the role of kind of fantasy and you gestured to it and, and it seems too simplistic. And, and maybe this is where where other Alex, if I should be so bold. Um, other uh, Alex. God, other it's Alex. Been 20 minutes in, I'm already other Alex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's, how, that's how fickle I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, it feels like it's too simplistic to say, oh, one is, is more fantasy than the other. One is more grounded in the sort of, you know, atrocities of the pacific war and, and the other one is about a sort of cat bus but it seems like well I, I i'll defer to the fantasy expert but it seems it seems as though that's that's a distinction that kind of isn't really worth making well i was i was struck watching go over the fireflies um by how how much fantasy i could find in it uh, and i was aware that the film was a sort of depiction of of real life atrocities and it's a war film um and I did know about the sort of wraparound, overtly fantastical element of the movie, which I was um, excited to, to learn from your book, Alex, was a sort of addition of the director, um, Takahata, right? He, he puts those sort of fantastical embellishments of this ghost frame framework um, into the film. Uh, and perhaps we can we can talk about the sort of reasons behind that in a second. Um, but but it made me think that obviously, you know, on one level, it's it, it, I could see people think Alex has got his um, uh, he's got his work cut out this week because other than the sort of first 30 seconds to a minute and a half and then the final kind of image of the movie there's not a lot of overt fan there's no cat buses for me to, to dissect this week unfortunately but I think that's more a distinction in terms of pacing than it is a distinction in terms of rhetoric because I think those two sequences at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie are absolutely pivotal to understanding this story. And all right, they don't take much screen time up. They completely mediate the way in which you're asked to engage with this story. Um, and I couldn't help find actually feeling, and I'm still trying to articulate exactly that distinction, but there is a similar liminal quality to the, to the storytelling going on here as there is in... Uh, Totoro, which is that, that there's always a sense in Totoro of like what 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 kind of story is this and and what kind of uh, reality am I be asked to take here and a similar I think um, register comes across here in that I'm constantly watching the movie and I've got lots of notes on on various aspects of the ways I've sort of found fantasy in it but the the overall takeaway was that I found that watching it was an odd experience of Am I watching uh, perceptual realism here? Am I watching naturalism? Am I watching uh, grotesque? Uh, am I watching nightmare? Um, what kind of relationship to the past is the animation asking me to have here? And the and do the characters have here? And and does the story have here? And I and I never really settled on one answer. And in many ways, that was the answer: is that that kind of free floating. Um, ghostly quality, pun perhaps intended, was part of the, the register of fantasy throughout. Fantasy kind of has felt like a strange th fog sort of um, proliferating every image of this of this story, despite the fact that there's not a lot of fantastical imagery um, in the film. Mm. Yeah, so the, the fantasy element you're referring to there is that ghosts of the two protagonists, Sator, the 14-year-old boy, and 
Setsuko, his four-year-old sister, mm. um, they, they are stalked. So the, the main narrative of the film is the ostensibly realist account of their kind of decline and, and death. But then, like you say, there's a frame narrative around it where their phantoms kind of stalk them. Well, stalk is maybe not the right word, but their fan- their, the phantoms kind of intercede every now and then, and we see them observing the realist main narrative. Um, I think it is a startling addition, and like you, you said, Alex, um, it, it's not in the original story, the original novella that the film is based on, um, which incidentally is that the novella is based closely on the real experiences of the author, um, Akiyuki Nisaka, and we can touch on that later because it's, it's relevant as well, but um, <clears throat> the ghost narrative is not in the novella, but Takahata adds it um, in his film, which he also wrote, wrote the script for. Um, and it is startling because, yeah, like you said, in so many ways, the film is incredibly naturalistic and faithful to how people move and how things look and how events happen in wartime. And yet you have these phantoms kind of observing them. And I think it works for me um, as an addition for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, the, the rules of how those ghosts behave are set out clearly uh, from the start. Firstly, the, the, the presence of the ghosts within the film is set out immediately from the start. It's the very first thing you see is a shot of Sator's ghosts. Um, and you immediately know it's a ghost because right off the bat in voiceover, he says in the first person, September 21, 1945, that was the day I died. Um, and then in a very kind of like cleverly composed sequence, it kind of cuts to behind the phantom's shoulder and you see him looking at the real life satyr, the real life version of himself, who is on his last legs and about to die in a station. And in this whole opening sequence that plays out around the station, you see the, the phantoms and the, the real people um, and the way that they're kind of composed within the frame, the way that they're kind of set against each other is very clear. Firstly, the phantoms most obviously are bathed in this kind of lurid red light which is completely unnatural uh, and which clearly kind of demarcates them as belonging to some kind of not real realm um, and then you see that they're observing the events of the main narrative very closely but they're not intervening and in um, they are just spectators uh, they don't have magical powers they're not poltergeists or benevolent ghosts that come in and lend a helping hand um, they don't inter- they don't intervene in the narrative um, at all. Not not only that, but they're always quite far away from the main characters. Um, Takahata is very skilled at using depth in composition, which is something cell animation doesn't always use really. Um, and in and in this film, he uses it to demarcate the phantoms from the from the real people. Usually, you'll have the phantoms in um, the foreground. And then you'll have the action kind of in the background and there might be an empty middle ground in between them. So there's a real kind of remove between the two things. I, I, I think 
yeah, I, and Alex says in terms of it sort of mediating the way that we're supposed to understand or inviting us to understand the narrative in a particular kind of way. I was I was absolutely struck by the the first shot because it's quite declamatory and it's quite kind of confrontational because you have this character who's looking at us and and it immediately plays with the issue of kind of time and history because it's got the sort of you know American Beauty stole it effectively. You know, this is let me tell you about <laughs> you know, the, the the night I died. But it's such an interesting way to treat what will ultimately or who will ultimately become one of your main protagonists to sort of introduce him and then have him sort of dismissed by the people that work at the underpass or that the, the cleaners are sort of you know just a tramp and and they're really dismissive of oh it's it's kind of this social problem it's another one and all this sort of stuff um that shot i think there's a moment from a sort of side on view of him as he's leaning over that's repeated later on when he first shows emotion um when his sister is kind of verbalizing the um, his, uh, their mother's death and, and discusses the graveyard, I think, for kind of the first time, bearing all these fireflies. And there's this really nice visual parallel between the bowing of his head at the start and then when he first sort of yeah. show, shows that, that, bit of, um, that bit of emotion. But I think um, Alex's point about the kind of mediating of what we're supposed to, or how we're supposed to understand the rest of the film, is also about how how we're invited to understand the role that fantasy will play in the rest of the film, exactly in the same mm. way as Totoro. These sorts of, well, is the cat bus real? Is it? Well, actually, does it matter? It doesn't really matter. And 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 one of the things, because fantasy does play a role in the film, because it's mm. unfortunately fantasy in the form of hallucinations is exactly the thing that sort of signals to the viewer that ah, I think, I think the characters are certainly the the little girl Suzuko is is almost. This is the moment where fantasy has kind of taken over, and that really poignant bit where she's um, holding these rocks to to present as rice balls that she's made. It's yeah. re- it's about the kind of role that fantasy fantasy can and does play in a film that is about a situation where it makes perfect sense that that people would kind of fantasize about a different way of life or a different way of of thinking, uh, and, and so. I know that in previous podcasts, Alex has said, you know, fantasy exists and, you know, fantasy matters. And it's, and it seemed like this, this was a really, this was, this was in many ways more fantastical than something like, um, my neighbor Totoro, because it shows about, it shows the, the importance of, uh, fantasy and the role that it kind of plays in our lives as we move about and interact with people and try and distance ourselves Mm. from things. And, and, yeah, I thought the signal or the use of fantasy to signal sort of m- mental and and well mental deterioration, but also the the psychology of one of the young protagonists is was sort of remar- remarkable. The fantasy being used in in that kind of perverse that perversion you talk a lot in the book about the kind of perversive nature of of this film in lots of ways, mm. and so that that seemed to to strike me. I think the ghosts in Grave of the Fireflies. Um, the, the, their use in the film is very limited. They only pop up. They're right at the beginning in that sequence I described. They're right at the end yeah. in a very important shot. And then they pop up maybe three times uh, in the interim or three or four times. Mm. Um, they perform a couple of roles. Firstly, in a narrow sense, um, he get, uh, the ghost of Sator gives some important exposition, very sparing but important exposition in his voiceover. He explains that he died, as in the, the real Sator died on such and such a day. And then right at the end, his voiceover comes back and he explains that he, you know, after he cremated his sister, he just went off to die in the station, basically. So there's that. That's a kind of very limited use of the ghost. But then 
the moments at which they um, appear in the narrative are really um, significant. Basically, they always appear when there's some kind of crisis happening in the main narrative. Um, at one point, they, the ghost of Sata appears just after the mother has died and been cremated. Um, at another point, he appears just after Setsuko herself has died and been cremated at the end. At another point, he appears just when they're selling off the kimonos that belong to the mum, which is a kind of symbolic detachment from the mum. That's like the final letting go of the mum. Those are the moments at which the ghosts appear. And obviously at the start when Seta himself dies. So they kind of, they not intervene, but they, yeah, they appear basically when, whenever there's a death or a kind of symbolic death. And um, it's suggestive of the trauma. I mean, these are the most traumatic moments in the storyline. And because the ghosts appear at those moments and, and look pained, the ghost of Sato like, w- looks really pained or uncomfortable in a lot of these cases. Um, that speaks of something of uh, the experience of trauma. Once you've lived through something like this um, as an individual, you, you never really forget it. And in a way, you're doomed to kind of cycle back around those traumatic memories kind of forever or maybe until you find some kind of closure through whatever it means. But... Um, that's one thing. And then there's a paradoxically, there's another function of that ghost realm, which is to reunite Sato and Setsuko in, in this kind of afterlife they're living in. Yes, they appear at painful moments, but also we see them as ghosts, like hugging each other or, or consoling each other or basically having a nice time together in this kind of afterlife. So that's fantastical, isn't it? I mean, the idea that there's an after, the, the idea that they can. Um, find closure after this horrific uh, experience they've been through together at the end of the war, that they can find a way to be happy together again is a kind of ultimate fantastical happy ending for the story. Um, and, I, and I think with all of that, to me, what the fantasy is, is what that kind of ghost wraparound is doing in terms of the spe- the spectator's fantasy, the old spectator's relationship to fantasy, is that it's almost um, that, that sense of, a hope beyond hope or a hope when when logic dictates hopelessness is kind of woven into the sort of yeah the dna of the movie because what because what you get is essentially going back to that sort of opening setup you almost get like you know chris said american beauty but you know it's almost like a a, a sunset boulevard film noir setup of, of of you know the you know cl- the, this is how I died. Now the movie's going to be about explaining the circumstances surrounding it. It's, you know, it's double indemnity, Walter Neff stuff, and and you know, writer, writers, but but writers of film they'll talk about sort of the importance of that determining function because it makes the whole movie about sort of it's not about redemption. It's about understanding the sort of pessimistic space of which the film opens in. But then the film kind of, the Grave of the Fireflies kind of wrong fucks you again because you think it's going to be a story about the death of, of, of Sata, but actually it becomes the death about of his sister. That's the structuring mm. emotional emphasis of the movie. It's not on whether the boy will survive. We know he'll die, but also that isn't, if we didn't know that, that still isn't the emotional sort of heart of the movie. The emotional heart of the movie is will his sister die and, and and the answer is yes yes and yes um so it's there's this kind of um you know you think it's about one person dying it's actually about both of them dying mm-hmm. and yet we and and the ghosts come and remind us of this at various points in the movie um mm-hmm. and yet you can't help until she actually dies and he dies again 
part of you kind of thinks this time it might be all right. Or this time maybe they will find the food in time. And, and, and that sense that you spend the whole film hoping that this is going to end in another way. Yeah. And it obviously isn't going to. It's, I mean, it's, it's tragic in the proper sense of the term, right? And, yeah. and tragedy has an element of fantasy to it. But the fantasy is tragic in that you're hoping, even though you know it won't gonna, it's not going to turn out that way anyway. Um, so that's, I think, that the, the real kind of triumph of the movie is that the film g- g- offers you absolutely nothing to cling to as, as, as validation for that sense of small, faint hope that still yeah. exists even at the end. It's not, it's a wonderful life. Oh, don't worry, they, they found the money anyway. Um, you know, that bit, which always used to annoy me as a sort of grumpy adolescent because it's like, well, you know, that's not the point. But uh, yeah. that's that validation that, that movies often give you of like, don't worry, actually, you, that you hoped in the right way. Andy and Red will meet on the beach and they do. There's the shot at the end. You know, it, it's, 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 yeah. it's, the hope remains, but there's nothing in the film to validate the hope other than your own prolonged sense of fantasy and that's an incredibly nuanced tonal achievement but one that left me kind of really kind of interested in um re-watching the movie yeah and um, i should point out that um the, the, that structure where it sets up um the tragic inevitability of the death right at the beginning and then flashes back and leads you through the life um is not the film's invention even though the film uh invented the ghost element the novella also starts by depicting satyr's death in the train station in a direct way no ghosts or anything and then flashes back so then that's faithful to the novella um that tragic element um then whether the idea that satyr sesco could be reunited in an afterlife brings you comfort or not i guess depends on your outlook your beliefs your, your view on the world and metaphysics <laughs> religion maybe but um but that's kind of secondary. In the main story, you're right. You kind of root for them and you hope somehow they'll find a way out, but they don't. Um, yeah. So just just on that that sort of the the role then of that that framing story, I, I feel like okay. So we have we have something that's then set up, and it's not that, that his death becomes inconsequential, but it's it's sort of an interesting way to then frame the subsequent story. But then when when um, Setsuko finally does die, or she sort of never never finishes that slice of watermelon, the voiceover says um, she kind of never woke up. Mm. And, then, so, and then immediately after that, you have scenes of her playing on her own, presumably while her brother is, is out. And she's kind of playing and, and, and very much in this world of, you know, she's living out fantasy. That's exactly what she's doing. She's yeah. kind of playing dress up. Yeah. She's responding to the, the world around her. So actually... Um, Setsuko never woke up is immediately undercut by the fact that we then see mm. her playing again. So actually, the whole film is really hallucinating, and it kind of doesn't. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't. And, yeah. and, I, and I wonder whether that's part of what, what Alex is saying. That kind of fantasy of tragedy, the idea of being reunited in the afterlife. Um, that's that is set up, and that is mirrored in in the in the way that the film has has a character who who dies, and then immediately has a, a short kind of two minute sequence of her very much alive and, and playing in a way that doesn't necessarily destabilise her death, but but certainly does something to the way that we understand it. And and I really enjoyed those scenes of her playing on her own because in, in, mm. in many ways, you know, this is a sort of a, a buddy movie in a slightly different way than, than <laughs> yeah. an, Ed, an Eddie Murphy buddy movie, but it's a buddy <laughs> movie. And uh, it's, it's quite nice to have a, a moment if the film begins in his 
psychology, it sort of ends more in hers. You get scenes of her playing. She she kind of yeah. She dresses up. She um, pretends that he's there. And I really liked those those sorts of insights into the way that she is potentially dealing with trauma in a very different way to to him. But but and so I wondered then, does that make all of the events in the film inconsequential? And if so, or if not, how does that then relate to? whether the film is anti-war or whether it is just a kind of condemnation of nationalism. Because am I right in thinking that Takahata said this wasn't an anti-war film? He did say that many, many times. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it was a kind of... Um, well, Takahata's definition of anti-war is important here. What he basically would say is that he didn't see it as an anti-war film or he didn't think he had the right to use that label um, basically because he didn't think the film would ever contribute in any meaningful way to pacifism in the real world he didn't oh, think right. people would watch the film and come away with a greater commitment to pacifism and actually translate that into action and actually make a difference right so i guess he had no expectations for his own film and maybe for the power of cinema in general mm. Um, and so that was his definition of anti-war. Whether he's right or not about the power of his film, that is a different definition from, I guess, what most people would think of anti-war, which for most people were just expressing a sentiment about the horrors of war. Depicting the horrors of war is enough to qualify you as anti-war. I think that's what many people would think of as anti-war, and that's probably why Grave of the Fireflies, which definitely does depict the horrors of war in grim detail, is often classed as an anti-war film. Mm. Um, when Takahata said that, um, he, he would always say it with a kind of note of regret, you know, like talking to audiences after a screening of the film. He was like, yeah, I know you will think it's anti-war, but, you know, I swear it's not meant to be. I think he just was making more of a statement about the difference between filmmaking and then actual political activism, which mm. in his view was the way to genuinely prevent wars. Um and he wasn't. He was a quite committed activist himself. Because yeah. Yeah. I think there's a way, of, certainly a way of thinking about when animation does politics in this way. And and, and actually, part of your analysis in the book about um, the scenes where she's sort of um, uh, in these little narrative, little vignettes where she's playing, and and you say that she subverts militaristic propaganda by using a bowl as a as a helmet and and all that kind of stuff, which is really interesting given what we know about the history of, of the way that animation, popular animation and popular animation characters have been used to sort of demonstrate animation's political commitment. Actually, propaganda isn't something that crops up too forcefully in the work because actually you could very easily in an animation class teach that as, as an example of political animation without necessarily teaching it as an example of propaganda. Um, mm. But there is, because of the way that they're, the, the way that pa the role that patriotism plays, the role that n nationhood plays, um, the, especially um, embodied in the figure of the kind of auntie, the really horrendous mm -hmm. uh, character who who, re who felt a little bit, I suppose, a little bit heavy-handed in in the way that that she speaks and the way that she tries to set the conditions for their their sort of. Uh, existence outside i think everything is rational you can't survive outside the system she's sort of the catalyst for them to move outside the system i wouldn't say she's heavy-handed but i would say she's anti-naturalistic in that i think this is the second 
point of, of fantasy in the film is that, is that the story, the, the non-wraparound story, is incredibly folkloric in its in its structure. You know, it's it's essentially uh, um, Chris, here it is again, a portal quest uh, narrative. It's, you know, threshold is broken, two young uh, travellers journey out into the world to um, to solve the riddle or, or, to, or to, you know, to, 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 to experience the wide world that they'd never experienced before. Along the way, they engage with a series of episodic encounters. They get the wicked stepmother. Um, we get um, all kinds of kind of grotesque characters. Um, and they move from place to place and, and experience more about the world as they go. So, you know, this is quite, you know, Joseph Campbell, Vladimir Prop, eat your heart out kind of 101 stuff. You know, if you, if you, could, you could set an A-level student this um, and they would write a perfectly acceptable essay that I'm going to have to stop them writing again and again for the rest of their undergraduate career about, you know, Propian um, formalist dynamics and Grave of the Fireflies. But... Um, but I think what, what I think what's interesting is that is that it's a it's this it is that it's distorted and it's nightmarish. It's it's not you know that the journey isn't um, exciting and wonderful. It's it's the more you learn about the more the, the more terrible it is. Um, so yeah. that's just my point. I was gonna that was the only other point of fantasy in the movie is that actually I think the point is is that it's relentless and and there is no other than the moments of them playing another moment of fantasy uh other than the moments of them playing there's no respite in this it's things just get worse because the world is a nightmare um, and i think that kind of is how i read the movie there, there's something almost um fantastical about the firebombs themselves as well mm. with a raining down on them throughout the whole film i mean if you think from the perspective of those children they would have no real idea what firebombs are it was a it had been being used by the Americans on the Japanese for a few months by that point, but the firebombs hadn't really landed on this neighborhood of Kobe. So when they do at the beginning of the film, the characters, I mean, you can, they're, they're terrified, they're shocked. They have been drilled in how to respond, but the drilling has been kind of woefully inadequate. And in any case, nothing can really prepare you for fire raining down on you. It's, it must've been so strange and so unnatural uh, that it's, it's almost not that different from spells being rained down on you by an evil wizard. You know? yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and it's something that often strikes me in um, anime films about the Hiroshima bomb um, and also Nagasaki bomb, but there are far fewer of those. There was something so new uh, about those bombs, even more so than the firebombing really, that their effects on the, the physical effects of the A-bomb on, um, people is often depicted in anime as uh, some kind of sci-fi like grotesque distortion but you'll see in these films that the character designs go completely off model and things go completely distorted firebombing is you know maybe not quite as novel and extreme as a-bombs but it's still that they're, they're a completely new type of experience for the characters involved they must have not known what was going on mm. um, yeah. Well, there's a really yeah. nice link between, I suppose, the fire, the, you know, firebombs and fireflies, and then uh, this, this sort of when the mother is then hit by one of the bombs, and you have the blood, the bandages, and you talk about this in the book, the sort of the flies and the maggots being this kind of uncanny twist on the on the magic of the fireflies that we see um, elsewhere yeah. in the in the in the film. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm sort of in many ways struggling to place the film because because writing on animation or writing on on sort of 
um, animation's political history. Animation is at once a political medium because of its rhetorical nature, but equally these moments within popular animation history where, you know, Disney has a contract with the US government. Uh, Warner Brothers animators are creating characters um, for instructional short training videos for soldiers. Um, about warfare that weren't intended for kind of public consumption and, and writers on political animation. Um, so Eric Herhuth has written a piece on political animation and propaganda and says that we there's a relationship between the animation of politics and the politics of animation. Uh, the animation of politics refers to animated films, media and performances that do politics, um, that support a position or make an argument that intervenes in, in a political debate or social crisis. Uh, mm. And then the... the, the um, Politics of animation refers to the debates, issues, and ideological differences and conflicts that exist within animation production, consumption, and spectatorship. Um, and obviously, well, not obviously, but this seems to fall on the side of the former. The animation of politics is intervening into a real-world kind of crises. And then uh, Herhuth talks about you know the way that this most often happens is caricature, cartoons, satire, and propaganda. And it doesn't feel like it sits neatly in any of those categories. And I, I, because it's not overly, you know, it's not satirical or parodic in the way that we might understand the history of political caricature or spitting image or anything that that sort of punches up in that sense. Um, it's not cartoon, although in the book you talk about it's sort of visual style that is that it is sort of stylized to some. And I did notice actually watching it that there are sort of slight shifts in the way that some of the images are represented. Um, especially when there are other characters. I think there's, I can't remember exactly the bit where there's three or four young boys, I think, that, that happen mm -hmm. upon their, and, and their, the style seems of a slightly different. And it doesn't yeah. feel overtly propagandist in the way that you might understand the history of animated propaganda. And so I'm, I'm sort of struggling, and often the way to solve it is to think about, you know, who financed it, where was it shown? And, and so I am, I'm sort of interested in the film in terms of what it's, how we can read politics into it and what, what side, whether it sits more on the animation of politics or the politics of animation and what, what that means for when, for when we try and understand animation according to this sort of potent, if it mm. does have it, but a, a kind of potent political thrust. But I do find it an interesting film that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily fit neatly into these categories, perhaps for a good thing. No, it doesn't. Um, although uh, people, audiences in... Um, countries that were once victimized by Japan sure. or occupied by Japan or uh, have called it propaganda. Yeah. And uh, that shows how slippery the yeah. uh, notion of propaganda is really. Uh, it has been, for example, in South Korea, criticized for uh, inspiring sympathy among the Japanese without showing any of the awful things that the Japanese army did in Korea or on the continent and other places. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the film critiques, in my view, uh, critiques the nationalism of the time yeah. does it quite subtly. Um, and I think probably the amount you know about the Japanese empire in that period of time uh, will affect the amount of critique you read and you see in the film. Um, but what's interesting is that Sata, I mean, f firstly, the aunt who's the closest thing the film has to a baddie uh, is a clear example of someone who kind of uh, um, who basically uses national the language of nationalism and patriotism to really awful ends. Like yeah. she constantly invokes it as a reason why the two children have to work harder or eat less or whatever. 
But the more subversive thing in the film is that Sator himself, who is the main character and who, you know, we we feel so much sympathy for and we've seen him die at the start of the film and everything. He himself is also an ardent nationalist and imperialist. And uh, we know this because at several points in the film, he makes throwaway comments that reveal the extent to which um, he has kind of bought into the idea of the great Japanese empire. He'll say something like, um, you know, when when his city is firebombed, he'll say, dad will get them for this. And he's referring to his dad, who's a sea captain, who's fighting the Americans. Um, but when the news of Japan's defeat finally comes through, he can't believe it. It's like, what? The great Japanese uh, empire? How is that even possible? And, I mean, it, I think if you watch the film generously, you understand that that's not that surprising because he is quite a young person. He's a 14-year-old he'll have spent his whole life uh, being fed propaganda. Why would he believe any different? Mm. Um, even so, in a lot of other films like this, I mean, other anime features that show the kind of wartime, the war period or the dying months of the war, those films rarely actually make their main characters the objects of sympathy. Um, they, 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 those characters are rarely imperialists in those other films um, to the extent that um, Sato is here. So that's quite subversive. And um, the effect of all these little details is uh, for the film to say, look, in the war, this was the attitude. This is how people thought. Mm. Setsuko obviously is too young to really understand anything about what's going on in the war. But many of the other characters in the film have a total um, like, commitment to the war effort. And there's a very telling flashback at one point where you flash back to the start of the war or the years just before the war, where you see a big kind of naval review with all the Japanese people cheering and waving Japanese flags. This is a blunt statement saying, look, everyone was up for this war. Let's not pretend otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, this isn't something that's specific to the Japanese character or anything. In general, like support for war, you know, wars are often fought with a lot of public support, at least in the beginning. And then if the war starts turning bad, that support may wane. But um, that's a political statement in itself to say that, you know, um, it is not, you know, that the, 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 the populace are, are complicit in support for the war a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, you said, that, you know, the age of Satan, that he would have grown up and not really known anything, anything different. So I'm, I'm, if we if we say that you know the film starts in and around well the tail end i guess 44 45 he dies in september 45 yeah. uh, there are t there are and, and this goes back to what i was saying about animations you know political history there are two films produced in 1943 one is the looney tunes propaganda short tokyo jokio which <laughs> have a rough idea about what that film's about um notorious and controversial for, for lots and lots of reasons, not least the racist and problematic depictions of, of the Japanese. Um, also in 1943, short Japanese animated film, um, The Spider and the Tulip, I think is the rough translation, Kumo to Tulip. Um, 43, yeah. Kenzo Mazoka. Uh, it's about a ladybird being chased by essentially a black-faced spider um, that is intended to embody America. And I often teach these two films as a sort of, this is how animation was wielded, a, a particular historical moment by both. So we look at the, you know, the, the, the Japanese production and the Hollywood production. It seems like the characters, and Saito in particular, would have had access or is 
it's exactly these kinds of cartoons that create conditions by which is exactly that you're saying there's a there's sort of a, yeah. a media fueled hysteria around the enemy and the other and the the core and the periphery and all these kinds of things these power structures um but it's just interesting that the film is sitting in around the time of course but there are the film is setting in around the time where where animation was confronting kind of head on exactly the historical context to which this film relates and actually it's and that's perhaps why it doesn't fit so neatly because it doesn't lean on animation's vocabulary of exaggeration and transformation and and uh, caricature and those sort of visual traditions and graphic traditions equally it doesn't lean on animation as a medium highly conducive to parody and satire it sort of does it kind of does politics in different in different ways um yeah so so it's it, it kind of struck me when you exactly when you said that the characters may have you know, we're aware, you know, they're aware of and, and won't have known any different. It made me think of animation being kind of complicit, of course, in exactly that sort of cultural landscape at that time. Yeah, I'm sure Takahata would have. Yeah. He was, what, I think eight years old at the end of the war. I forget exactly, but roughly that age. Um, and although I haven't found any writings of his where he specifically mentions this, he would have surely been shown some animated yeah. films during his childhood in the war and he would have seen those propaganda films um in fact the the spider and the tulip which you mentioned um was actually funnily one of his favorite animated films <laughs> of all time he was i'm sure fully aware of its uh, uses uh anti-american yeah. propaganda but he saw it as a um aesthetically beautiful film which it is and yeah. in in the japanese uh, in the context of japanese animation production it was quite quite pioneering in its techniques so he loved it for that which is kind of ironic when you think of it but yeah no i'm sure he would have yeah um he would have been fully aware of the use of animation as propaganda and the shot you mentioned briefly uh in which setsuko puts a bowl on her head yeah. the kind of pseudo helmet and then it slides off pathetically i wonder whether it's a reference to specifically this one great big work of animated propaganda called um the Momotaro films, uh, Umi no Shinpei, what's the English translation? Uh, Divine Sea Warriors or something like that, where you see lots of anthropomorphic animals wearing helmets like that and, and saluting. Uh, it might be a direct crib or kind of, um, yeah, parody of, yeah. Of, of something from that film. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. I wanted to talk briefly about the use of depth in it. because I, 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 You mentioned earlier, actually, about that you, you think um, this, this is one of the trademarks of this director is that it uses depth in a really interesting way and i must confess i've i've written i'm not usually the one to spot this kind of stuff but uh, <laughs> i did no, write in my notes um the depth seems really interesting and and i noticed a recurrent motif in the film of using sort of backgrounds uh sort of quite often quite still backgrounds quite painted backgrounds that depict the sort of uh horror of a particular scenario um, if we're trying to place this movie and place it sort of outside the kind of, you know, baggage that is um, uh, Miyazaki and, and his back catalogue, what, what else can we say about the sort of artistic um, flares that this movie demonstrates about um, this side of Ghibli? There we are. It took, it took me that long to have to say it, but Ghibli, Ghibli, Ghibli. Let's <laughs> say <That's so> Ghibli. <laughs> um... What does it do that's uh, stylistically striking? I mean, many things. Um, 
the yeah, like you say, the depth. Um, cell animation. Often you'll have characters just profile side on talking to each other on a kind of flat plane, but Sakata, like you say, uses foreground, middle ground, background. Um, the, the the palette of this film is really striking. It's very subdued, as it would be, because it's just a bombed out landscape. Um, everything is brown and kind of smoky grey in the first third of the film, and it kind of stays that way. I mean. There's more greenery around the pond, but still, you're not really getting many bright hues. It's mostly very desaturated and um, lots of different colors as well. Just a, a bigger range of different shades than you would have seen in the average anime production of this time. Um, and compared and with Totoro was... as well, I guess, compared with the kinds of color palette of something like... Um... Yeah. Something like Totoro. Uh, I, uh, the only thing I would think about with colours, and I've, I'd forgotten about this, is the intercessions of kind of colour towards the end. I think it's when the uh, family, I want to say three girls in their kind of skirts, yeah. really colourful skirts. Yeah. So is that is that one of the first moments where we get this the the sort of return? You know, the the, the war has ended. Uh, Japan have have um, surrendered. And we have a soldier returning home, is that? Did I imagine? Yeah, you have. They're not soldiers. They're, it's implied that they were evacuated. Right, um, right. They were, it's implied that they're quite a wealthy family because they live in this grand house by the pond. They were evacuated and they're just returning to their home because the war has ended. And so it's safe to come back. And the bitter irony mm-hmm. of it is that their house is just overlooking the pond and the cave where Satan Setsuko lived. And you wonder whether those... Um, those girls that that family had been there throughout the war, whether they wouldn't have noticed Seto and Setsuko and maybe done something for them. Anyway, it's too late by that point and um, they come back and it's a completely surreal moment because they're giddy with joy and that's something you, well, you've seen it a bit with Seto and Setsuko when they're playing around the pond. But by this point in the film, you know, Setsuko is dead and Seto is heading that way and then you just have this completely incongruous burst of laughter and these girls walk in and you're right. The color, uh, the colors brighten a little bit. I can't remember exactly, but their dresses are a bit more brightly colored. Um, green returns to the, to the landscapes. And then the very last shot before the final shot with the ghost is also quite beautiful. And it's when Satan's cremating Setsuko on top of the hill, but it's, very verdant and the sky is blue but then there's a kind of like fade and he stays in the same position but the sky fades to a kind of um indigo purple as it goes to dusk and that's a color you haven't seen much of in the film uh, but it's got this very kind of like sunsetty kind of elegiac feel to it um and that's basically the end of the main narrative and then you have a final coda where the ghosts come back and and, and see the, the modern city, which is an amazing moment in itself. Um, but um, yeah, he plays with color very, very cleverly. I say he, credit here really is um, to two people working with Sakahata. Um, one is called uh, Michio Yasuda. She was the color uh, designer uh, of Grave of the Fireflies and like a billion other Ghibli films. She was with them from the beginning she she died a couple of years ago, but she worked on basically all of their films and her contributions to Ghibli are just massive, massive, massive. Um, both Takata and Miyazaki just always wanted to work with her, refused to countenance any other color director. And 
in the end, with Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies being produced at the same time, she had to basically moonlight on Totoro while working on Grave of the Fireflies because both directors wanted her so badly. Uh, there's her, and then the, the, the background um, art director is called um, Nizo Yamamoto, and he's another um, Miyazaki, Takata, Ghibli stalwart figure who worked on Future Boy Conan with Miyazaki and then went on to work with the two directors at Ghibli. And um, he's still alive, also a brilliant artist. And so between them, they really create the, mm. the the colors of the film and the colors are so important because they are very naturalistic. They're very kind of muted and realistic and not gaudy and not overly saturated. Um, so there's that. And then there's the animation, which is very naturalistic too. Um, this is again something, yeah, I mean, the, I think the Japanese have always had a wider range of animation styles in their industry, in their mainstream movies at their disposal than, say, Hollywood. Um, and that kind of naturalistic animation you see in Grave of the Fireflies is not like a total one-off in Grave of the Fireflies by any means, um, but it is beautifully done there. It really is beautifully um, animated. Um, yeah, I, I I was marked by how many of the characters, or how mo many quiet, or I've written quiet and still, but I wasn't happy with either of those words, and I think you've just put it much better, because they are moving, but the the animation is nowhere near as um, frenzied or, or hyperbolic that the sort of the Western tradition would suggest, um, and, and and certainly the moment is allowed to be still and, and quiet mm. and refrained, and it's, and it's almost like the film isn't worried you know animation kind of what it's a bit like a shark right it's life is in movement it has to move or it dies and becomes a becomes a drawing um and these this is almost these moments where the characters barely move and the ghosts barely move they sort of very yeah. slowly move almost the film is evoking or daring daring to evoke that the, the death beneath the animation the drawing beneath the animation i mean i think Mul uh, laura mulvey talks about this in her book on um on 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 celluloid, right? That the death within the image, which is the still image that the that projection tries to trick you, isn't there? Um, yeah. Well, the tr the same is true here. The drawing beneath the animation, the the still stillness of of life, and and I, but but it isn't. You know, it's not still. It's moving, but it's and it's really beautifully well observed, and and um, yeah, real real um, significant trait of this movie. Chris is definitely going to have to say something now it's no, very it was, animated it was the little uh. it was the, it was this kind of focus on little details one of my notes is mm. i think my favorite bit is where she gets her hair stuck in the comb just a, just a small right. little small little detail but i really liked exactly that sort of observational quality and and mm. yeah the, the the restrained character animation that actually i wonder whether that fits into the difficulty of, of placing this film because because when we think of kind of political animation, all this caricature, cartoon, satire, propaganda implies real, I don't know, just seems to imply movement, that there's a real active... And actually this film is a lot more... Maybe that's part, part of the reason it's so difficult to place is because it sort of just lets the, let the, lets the politics kind of unfold it's just just there in the in an unfurled across the across the narrative i suppose the flip side of that and i've read a few things on on grave of the fireflies about um Saito's nationalism being used to justify his own selfishness and whether or not there is a, a critique of his lack of movement and mobility uh, when compared to his to his father and and i had a little look on online at, at some of the responses to 
to the film in relation to memory and, and trauma and, and um, the, ne- the, the need or the want or the difficulty or the tragedy of forgetting. Um, and there's some stuff around rather than rather than staying in Kobe and volunteering himself to the war effort, he shuns his community, moves into a cave and waits for his father and the Japanese military machine to save the day. And so I just mm. wondered what your thoughts were on that potential reading of the film as a critique of his ability and whether the film you know we can judge him does the film then judge him for for his actions and it and it's sort of even though he dies first in the film he dies second in the chronology and i'm so i'm just trying to get my head around whether or not that actual decision to have that scene at the start without it offers more of a critique of his actions because of, of mm. his sister's death or so yeah I just I'm just interested in this potential critique of him as a character it's a question I ask everyone who watches the film I basically ask them do you think Sata um, carries responsibility yeah. some or all responsibility for his sister's death and I always ask that question because the answer is always different depending on who I ask um, it's clear that in a very direct sense, he is responsible for her life and therefore her death because ultimately he chooses where she goes. He chooses what she, you know, he chooses to move out of the aunt's house. Um, and then he is kind of responsible for uh, creating a new life with her in the pond. She's far too young to take on responsibility herself. Whether he's too young to really know what he's doing or not is a very subtle thing which different people have different ideas of. He's 14 years old. I don't think the film literally says that, but you can tell he's roughly that age. Um, that is, is that childhood? Is that teenagehood? Is that adulthood? How mature should he be at that age? A big part of my argument in my book involves invoking the opinions of Takahata on this. And Takahata's opinions of what Seta should or shouldn't have done are not correct you know there's no such thing as a correct reading of the film but it is very interesting to know what the director at least thought himself and what he intended given that he wrote and directed this film with a lot of creative control and he was unequivocal he said that um he saw Sata as um kind of essentially pampered because he is a from a wealthy family and you can kind of tell that he has been living a relatively sheltered life because he doesn't understand much about the outer world. He doesn't understand how the black market works. He doesn't understand, um, you know, he's he's very naive in the way he talks to the doctor, for example. Pampered and in a way self-centered and kind of chasing moments of short-term joy by leaving the aunt and making the most of this solo life they create for themselves in the the pond, in in the cave but with no long-term vision for how he's going to get them out of this mess. Um, It's so telling that when they move to the pond, on the first night, Setsuko says, I forgot my toothbrush. And he replies, "Uh, well, one night without it won't matter. As if they're going to get a toothbrush the next day, you know, for the second night. (laughs) He's not thinking ahead at all. And so he is flawed. Yeah, he is. Uh, How much he can be blamed for that for his flawed decision-making is really just up to the viewer. And I I say in the book, my personal reaction to the film when I first saw it, and and it hasn't really changed, is that um, 
there's only so much responsibility he can carry in such an extreme situation, which he wasn't ever really prepared for. Um, so, it's, and this kind of brings us on to uh, you were talking about the politics of the film, Chris, but this brings us on to a kind of very interesting kind of layered political message on top of the film, um, which is that so the ghosts, the final kind of function of the ghosts within the narrative is that they connect the events of the main narrative to the present day. Right at the beginning, Sata is in the station in the modern day, although that's very subtle. You only get that from looking closely at the decor. More obviously, at the end, he uh, and Setsuko, the phantom versions of them, look down on a modern city, a modern, um, I don't know, template Japanese city, but it could be yeah, a modern city anywhere, really. There, the film draws a link, a firm, clear link between 1945 and 1988 when the film came out. Why? What's it saying? That's ambiguous. But um, Takahata, again, was uh, clear in what he wanted to express here, which was that um, <laughs> the way Seta um, behaves in the film with elements of selfishness and, and pamperedness um, reflects how kids were being raised and how kids were behaving in the modern day of 1988. Um, he was saying, essentially, that most of his young viewers in 1988 um were were living sp spoiled consumerist lives japan had become very rich by that point um and they had kind of lost a sense of civic duty or kind of social responsibility society had become about chasing profits about private gain and much less about kind of political uh, about social cohesion and he kind of he hated that about his the contemporary society and he was basically inviting, well, he was hoping to invite his viewers, uh, the, the young children and teenagers of 1988, to watch this film, to watch Sater's behavior, to realize, to see the flaws in Sater's decision making, and then to realize that they themselves would probably do the same, and then kind of ponder their own inadequacies, or at least the inadequacies of the times they were living in, which were encouraging them to live on their own, sheltered in their own houses with you know, their, their TVs and their Walkman or whatever rather than engaging with society. Mm. Sato withdraws from society, he doesn't engage with it. And T Takahata saw that uh, in the society of the 1980s too. That's a very kind of, very subtle and idiosyncratic bit of social commentary and whether, I don't know, I don't think many viewers actually perceived what he was trying to say there. And I don't think the film gives them many clues because you only just have that one shot of the city at the end, the modern day city, that could mean many, many things. But that's that's super interesting in terms of, I'm not really, I'm not really registered that, you know, in the way that, that often historical pieces work is that they're more about the the time that they're released than they are the time yeah. that they're set. And and actually that spectral quality to the two characters that as they sit and look over this sort of super neon cityscape mm. hadn't really occurred to me that, and, and actually at one point doesn't, when when they're kind of looking around and surveying about a third of the way into the film, maybe slightly earlier, that both of the characters are surveying the ruins. Um, Sato says that was the civic center. It's kind of all destroyed, and that's the that's. Yeah. And you mentioned the sort of civic responsibility that potentially Takata was critiquing of of late nineteen eighties Japan and and that sort of disruption 
to social mm. cultural coherency. So I'd not really I'd not really registered that the, the the way that the film and maybe that is again why it's difficult to place because it's kind of retrospective propaganda which doesn't kind of it's very different to the to the actual wartime shorts of the forties of course. But part of the reason it's so difficult is that it kind of uses this political backdrop of an event that is forty odd years ago and is yeah. through that very brief final shot of them surveying the city allows us to potentially read their their own judgment as characters onto and onto the the japan of of 1988 um so i'm not really i'm not really registered the that kind of flash flashing moment of modernity towards the end where you're like well of course this is now now the 80s and it's quite specific to Japan. Well, I mean, lots of, you know, developed countries in the 80s were very wealthy and arguably moving towards, or definitely moving towards private concerns over social. But um, you're right, when you watch a war film um, and you look for political commentary in it, I think you look first and foremost for some kind of direct commentary on the war and what causes war and how people behave in war you might not then be inclined to make a link between what you're seeing there and what you're living right now. If you're living in a peaceful, wealthy society, it might just seem too different. Mm. Takahata is asking his viewers to make a, a big leap there. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on in the context of fantasy, because the novella, which was written by Nasaka, Akiyuki Nasaka, a famous writer in Japan, is in its own sense, one big fantasy. Um, not in the sense that it, depicts things that could not happen in reality, but in the sense that it presents an alternate kind of imagined version of real events. Um, as I said, Nasaka was, um, he lived through this himself. He was a bit older than Takata. He was the age of Sata at the end of the war. He lived in a cave as well. When I say cave, really it's a kind of bomb shelter. It's been dug. Uh, he lived in a bomb shelter as well, having fled the house of a, a relative. He also had a little sister. She also died. Um, a lot of the story is autobiographical. Um, and he kind of suppressed those memories for a long time after the war. But then in the 60s, he sat down and wrote Grave of the Fireflies, which obviously brings back those experiences, but kind of remixes them as well. Uh, there are many differences. There are many fictionalizations within for example, obviously, Nasaka didn't die like Sata does. He survived and became a writer. But crucially, and we know this because Nasaka also wrote about that, that period in a more literally autobiographical, non-fictional way. So we can compare what he talks about in his more strictly non-fictional writing with Grave of the Fireflies. We know that he was uh, less good, less virtuous than Sata is in the story. He confessed that he would um, hit his little sister sometimes to stop her crying at night because he couldn't bear the sound of her crying. He confessed that when he had food, he could have given more to her, but instead he he gobbled it up himself because he was so hungry. These things happened and he deeply regretted them and he held himself to blame for his sister's death. And when he came to write Grave of the Fireflies, he reimagined the events slightly. He makes Sata seem more caring than he saw himself as having been. And obviously he then makes Sata die, which is in a way a kind of the logical end point of self-sacrifice. Um, 
if, Nasuka, if the real Nasaka survived, it's in part because he ate that food that could have gone to his sister. But Seta dies, so there's something more kind of pure. He's almost redeemed in what he tried to do for his sister by also dying and following her into the afterlife. And so the story is a fantasy, a kind of very tragic one, mm-hmm. a reimagining of maybe how he would have liked to behave if he could go through that whole experience again. And um, the film preserves the storyline essentially so it kind of carries that fantasy over um Sata, even though we've talked about his flaws he is kind of idealized in a way um and you do wonder watching it if you were in his position if you were that hungry and that desperate how you would behave too uh, would you even be able to behave as virtuously as Sata does in the film you know that's the tall order so in that sense, the film is kind of, the very fabric of the film is wishful thinking and fantasy. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, there's so much to, to numerate on with that because I, I, I was struck when, you, when reading your book how you wanted, by reasserting sort of some of the director's intentions back into the sort of critical reception of the film, one of the things you were interested in doing was um, engaging with the one aspect that most people, certainly within the sort of Western world, have in relation to this movie, which is that it's an incredibly emotional experience, and trying to sort of reassert the director's belief that actually that in, as he has almost Brechtian understanding of emotion, right? And that it's sort of, from what I gather from your book at least, in that the point isn't to cry, the point is to learn. Yeah. Um, and I think that all weaves into what you're saying in that, you know, fantasy is in many ways seen as an emotional experience, but actually it's through the processing of emotion that we learn. And, and that's that's mm-hmm. what fantasy is, in, or at least that's how it's theorized to work, right? Is that we, 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 we engage with a fantasy and we're, certainly fantasies of trauma. We repeat the trauma. We work through the trauma by, by having the compulsion to repeat it over and over and over again yeah. until the point at which we can achieve mastery, intellectual mastery over it. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like the writer was attempting to go through that in creating the story. Uh, and it sounds like um, Takahata wanted his audiences to go through a bit of that in watching it, which maybe gives it the rewatch factor, right? You rewatch the story after such an emotionally effective experience to attempt to achieve intellectually mastery of it. Do you feel with your book, Alex, that you have achieved intellectual mastery um, <laughs> of, of, of this so-called trauma or, or is there still some ways to go? No, I feel like it's just worn me down. Uh, it, <laughs> it mastered me. I watched it, I don't know how many times um, while I was writing this book. And one of my worries at the beginning of the project was that its emotional effect on me, which I find such a powerful and beguiling thing, would wear off. Yeah. Um, and it didn't. <laughs> and I still found myself crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Even when I was just kind of like fast forwarding through the film on silent, just to kind of get to a certain composition I needed to look at. I still found the cues, you know, the bits where uh, just around the end, especially, and, and that kind of sequence you were saying where Setsuko's playing on her own would always just bring bring on the waterworks. So, no. Um, and no, I don't think I've got intellectual mastery. I think there's still just so much to think about and talk about. And um, if my editors had given me 
twice or three times as many words to play with, I would have filled them all with just more thinking and so on. Um, it's a very rich and layered film, and ultimately, um, I wasn't able to write everything that could be written about it uh, within the 25,000 words. It just wasn't possible. So I had to kind of focus. Um, and yeah, I think also with time, I will. I haven't watched the film now in about nine months, but if I go back to it with time, I'll probably see new things in it again. Sure. It really is a rich film like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if listeners want to buy the book, it is available through all good independent bookshops and other bookshops. Um, uh, um, it's available well. It'll be available when this podcast is out or at least a couple of days after it. So if you are listening to it, you can probably order it now. So please do. Um, Alex, if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, you have a handle. Would you like to share it with listeners so they can yeah. keep up to date with your latest stuff? I tweet uh, at doodydoc. That's D-U-D-E-Y dok i tweet still about grave of the fireflies sometimes <laughs> but also other stuff um, animation related mostly and do check out um uh, alex's work on cartoon brew um and, and insight and sound uh, lots of wonderful stuff there um chris any any final thoughts from you yeah, yeah. i want to go and rewatch it now <laughs> do you? I don't know if I want to, but I'm sure I will, and I'm, you I'm will. looking forward to finding more yeah, in it. Because yeah, as yeah. I say, I'm, I'm one. I've only once seen it once, so yeah. Um, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate Thank it, and you. thanks for unpacking uh, Grave of the Fireflies with us um, it, it, again, having done this so in your book. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. I think people should uh, tweet at you on Twitter whether they think Sato was. Um, responsible or not this is an <laughs> ongoing debate which i've had with so many people right? maybe that's a bit cruel actually maybe that's a bit dark for twitter maybe not. No, you can, you can, you can twit can tweet that to us we'll take it uh, and, and i also i also yes. want to know what other animations should be next on the bfi film classics because it yeah. sounds like we've got to get this number up between um yeah. some of us out there so any academics or writers out there who who um who who are familiar with the series if you're not you can find it very easily by googling it what other what other animations should be on that list um, yeah that's a more fun twitter poll than the one i suggested yeah go with that <laughs> um, there's, there's a there's one coming on kiki's delivery service which is oh, cool so that's in the pipeline uh from um Daniel Martin, uh, but yeah, uh, I'm sure there's room for many more as well. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there yeah. will be. Um, that's been us for another week. You can uh, follow us at Fananim Research, F A N A N I M Research on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit, where we share um, our latest blog posts and podcast listings, so you can find them there. You can also subscribe to the podcast via your various uh, means. Um, all the usual outlets are available, and you can of course follow us um, or access the website on Fantasy Dash animation.org um, that's all the ways you can find us uh, but that's been us for another episode and we'll see you next time bye